The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello, and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at republicen.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson. As always, honored you're spending the next 30-ish minutes with me. Today's guest is a blast from my past and also such an influencer in her sphere of expertise that I cannot do her bio justice. Sherry Goodman is currently a senior fellow at the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program and Polar Institute. She is rightfully credited with educating a generation of U.S. military and government officials, including my late boss, Senator John Warner, about the nexus between climate change and national security, using her famous coinage, which you will hear, threat multiplier, to fundamentally reshape the national discourse on the topic. A former First Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, Environmental Security, and staff member on the Senate Armed Services Committee, Sherry has founded, led, or advised nearly a dozen research organizations on environmental and energy matters, national security, and public policy. So recently, the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies released reports detailing the extreme threats to national security that we face due to unmitigated climate change. I'll save the details for my conversation with Sherry, so don't go away. Coming up next, my conversation with Sherry Goodman. Listeners, welcome back. I'm so happy to be in conversation today with Sherry Goodman, the person I most credit for moving my old boss, Senator John Warner, to compelling him to want to work on climate change back, um, it feels like a million years ago. Sherry, welcome to the show. Delighted to be here with you, Chelsea. So that I'm referring back to that original, I believe it was the original CNA report in 2007 that linked national security and climate change that you were, you spearheaded that report. And I used to carry a copy of that around with me with different statistics highlighted because I never knew when Senator Warner was going to turn to me and either want a quote or want a statistic. It was so, so helpful to us. Well, uh, I have great fond memories of Senator Warner. He was a great statesman and a great senator. So at what point did you personally start noticing this connection between climate change and national security? And when when you started to, you know, I sort of see you as the the puppet master, right? You had all of these super smart strategic people who were on your side um, authoring these reports, doing um, outreach and so forth. But what was it, what compelled you to kind of put that all together, together to put that effort together and, in the first place? Was it sort of an aha moment for you or was it something that kind of built over time? Well, you know, I had the privilege, Chelsea, of serving with Senator Warner and earlier Senator Nunn, who was actually my boss on the Armed Services Committee, at a time in the at the uh, end of the Cold War, when much of our nuclear weapons complex uh, stopped working because of environment, safety, and health challenges in our defense facilities, and so I was present at an early stage um, when we had to um, understand how 
environmental considerations could affect our military preparedness. And um, so as I learned about that connection between environment and security, environment and defense, and then had the privilege of serving as the first deputy undersecretary of defense for environmental security, we understood what it, what it took to train to have our forces be ready under a variety of environmental conditions and what it took to clean up uh, contamination from Cold War and other activities. Uh, then uh, in, the, in the 2000s, uh, I uh, became more aware of climate considerations and uh, was asked to put together a group of military leaders to think about the national security implications of climate change. And I'll tell you, frankly, um, most of the generals and admirals and myself, when we were first asked about this, we were, in fact, a little skeptical. We weren't really sure what the connection was. Um, many people thought, OK, climate change is happening. But first, what does this have to do with national security? And, you know, OK, what's the picture here? So we spent. Um, but but I'll tell you that the military leaders and the Center for Naval Analysis are really dedicated to looking at the evidence and finding the facts and making decisions, you know, because warfighters have to make decisions based on, you know, what's, you know, being able to dominate the battle space and not have it uh, dominate them. So we spent a year of study uh, with the nation's leading uh, climate scientists, with intelligence experts, with defense experts in uh, the UK, in London, and in the US. And uh, after a year of study, we prepared our, our first report, uh, National Security and the Threat of Climate Change, where we characterized climate change as a threat multiplier, um, a threat multiplier for instability in fragile regions of the world. Um, we didn't fully know at the time that actually would affect us here at home as well. Uh, and, and each of the generals and admirals and myself, we had our own sort of aha moment um, where, where, for example, General Zinni, who had commanded our forces uh, both in Somalia uh, and in Iraq, could see that the growing um, desertification of the land was forcing uh, poor uh, farmers and herders to compete increasingly for scarce resources. And that was making them vulnerable to terrorists who would want to draw them in and take advantage of their vulnerability. Right, because economic insecurity is a big factor that drives a lot of people into extremism, right? Yes, exactly. You, I believe you coined that threat multiplier term. Is that right? Was that something that you, do you take ownership of that? I do. I, I, I recall sitting around the conference room uh, at CNA with the members of the CNA Military Advisory Board as we were coming to closure on our first report, dotting every I and every T, and then thinking about, you know, how do we communicate this somewhat complicated report, very deliberately written in language that was relevant to the national security community? In other words, we, you, we wanted to write from the perspective of a warfighter uh, and a national security professional, uh, because the very thing we knew at the outset was we were not tree huggers. So we knew that. In fact, we didn't get into it for that reason at all. Um, and so we needed a way to communicate it. And force multiplier, for example, is a term commonly used to talk about technology or other enablers that help make our force more effective. So this was essentially a play on that concept, a threat multiplier, 
where climate change acts to exacerbate or accelerate other threats we already face, whether it's terrorism, as we've just discussed, or weapons of mass destruction becoming more accessible, falling into the wrong hands. Um, extremism, now we have seen that in recent, uh, in recent times as well, as people become more desperate and fall prey to um, sort of other causes. Migration of people, right? That could be something that we see happens out of, maybe that's not necessarily a, a, that's the, that, that's what's multiplied. That's not the threat multiplier itself. But if you have, you know, climate impacts in an area driving people away, and then those people, for example, let's say it's, you know, the, the climate activity is happening south of the border, we could see more people trying to come into the U.S. to escape whatever conditions they're facing in their own countries. We are already experiencing that, very much so, Chelsea. I mean, we live at a time when the greatest wave of global migration since World War II, uh, and my parents being Holocaust refugees, you know, I, I feel it very personally, the refuge mm-hmm. that uh, America provided to my parents at that critical juncture, I would not be alive mm-hmm. uh, had they not been able to find uh, refuge uh, in the United States and been welcomed uh, from Germany in the late 1930s. Now, today we have um, migration occurring all around the world, and some of it is fueled in fact by changing climate conditions. And in our own hemisphere, um, the what they call the dry corridor or the uh, Northern Triangle, the countries of Honduras, Latin, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador are literally drying up from prolonged droughts. And so the agriculture that is the mainstay of the economy, particularly the coffee crop, but other crops as well, no longer supports families and people are fleeing. That's why you have so many families, young people, children, women, mothers fleeing um, because they can, and it's of course added to by um, narco-trafficking, corruption, human trafficking, right. um, a lot of political strife. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a cauldron of instability that's occurred now, uh, made worse in many cases by the fact that we have these climate extremes like prolonged drought. So in 2007, when the Center for Naval Analysis, um, when you all put together this report, I do believe, and I think you just said this, the focus was more on the international, uh, national security sort of looking outward, right? So um, strife that other nations might be involved in that we would either be called in to, um, to mediate or to be on one side or the other of. Um, we were looking at droughts, things like this. But I feel like now we fast forward, gosh, 14 years and this report, these reports that came out from the Defense and Intelligence Agencies um, in September, I believe it was, seems to be a little more inward focused too. So we're seeing impacts and threats within our borders. It's no longer just looking outward to what could happen outside the U.S. We're experiencing national security threats right here at home because of climate change. Absolutely. It is no longer just about the away game. It's a home game now uh, because increasingly we are um, afflicted by intense hurricanes 
and flooding and wildfires and sea level rise. In fact, myself, I'm in the middle of my own climate disruption uh, here in New England, where we had a very early Northeaster that included a bomb cyclone. We lost power. A tree came down and blocked our street. And there's a vast amount of unexpected destruction for which the community was not prepared because there wasn't warning about the intensity of the storm. Um, and so, so now uh, we increasingly find, uh, you know, if we go back to the military side, that our military is being asked to support um, domestic natural disasters, whether it's floods, fires, hurricane relief, think Superstorm Sandy, think Hurricane Harvey and uh, Ida. So now we increasingly use our forces to do either what we call domestic support to civil authorities, um, or in, in even in um, the, you know, in let's say the Caribbean and other places close to the US to do natural disaster relief uh, and humanitarian assistance. Think about Haiti, um, you know, countries that are very vulnerable, vulnerable both uh, to climate extremes and weather effects, but also lack the resilience to recover in their own societies. And all this is happening at the same time that some of our naval bases, which of course the Navy has to be located near bodies of water, and as sea levels rise, our naval bases are at risk. Absolutely. I mean, Norfolk Hampton Roads is really ground zero for climate impacts. Uh, on the U.S. military. It's the largest complex of military facilities in the world. Uh, it's got every service. Uh, I mean, we think of it as a Navy base, and it does have a Navy base and a sub-base, uh, but it's also got Coast Guard and Army. And the Air Force has its Air Combat Command headquarters down there. We even have a NATO command down there. And we experience sunny day flooding there on a regular basis where people can't get from their homes uh, to the base to work because there's flooding in the streets, even when it's not raining. Um, so we have, um, and, and that's a combination of sea level rise. Um, you've got coastal inundation uh, and, and you've got a community that's very heavily built up a set of communities along very low lying and vulnerable coastal areas. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. So are there steps that the Department of Defense and the intelligence agencies are taking now in response to their findings, their, their continual findings that climate change is a threat and if so, like, what are some things that they can do now? What are some things that maybe they need Congress's help to do? Because I'm sure that they can act within some of their own authorities, but they probably need some new authorities as well. Uh, well, you're right, Chelsea. Uh, just in the last few weeks, the Department of Defense has released uh, a climate adaptation plan where it's laid out five specific lines of effort as a way to both, for example, make the bases we just talked about more resilient, uh, train a climate-ready workforce. Climate literacy has to be included across all levels uh, uh, and echelons of command and of training. Uh, addressing vulnerabilities and weaknesses in our supply chains, for example, because of climate and other disruptions. 
And uh, then at the same time, uh, or just after, DOD also released a climate risk analysis, uh, a different document, which is intended to uh, integrate climate considerations across all parts of defense strategy, planning, uh, the defense guidance, over 30 documents um, that relate to how DOD budgets, how it plans, and how it leads strategy in its warfighters, from warfighting plans, wargaming, exercises, modeling, and simulation. So as this report's requirements take effect, it will really begin to turn the wheels uh, within the Department of Defense. Our combatant commands based overseas all around the world will be integrating it into their uh, theater operational planning activities. And you'll see more understanding when we look at how regions like the Arctic are already changing because of increased um, with, with retreating sea ice and thawing permafrost and rising temperatures. You know, you've got more opening, you've got a whole new ocean that's opening in our lifetime, and you've got a northern sea route that Russia is hoping to monetize as a toll road for transportation uh, from Shanghai to um, Rotterdam and China with ambitions of a polar silk road. So this is an arena of geopolitical competition that was frozen in the Cold War that has now emerged. And we have to up our game to be able to operate in that changing world. And it's changed because of climate. I I feel like it's really important to pause for a second and just note that all of these all of all of the thought behind these connections, everything that you're describing here, this is not political. This isn't now we have President Biden in office. And so the department is now the Department of Defense is turning into, as you said earlier, a bunch of tree huggers. Right. This has been a consistent message that the department has been looking at for, you know, cross several presidencies at this point. And I don't know, you know, the flag officers and the military experts so well, the little bit of experience I've had with them, I have felt like, you know, these are not people who, who take big risks, right? They're, they're analyzing moments, they're analyzing situations, they're going to be conservative in how they approach a situation with like the one thing that I always remember, I think it was General um, Galloway who said, you can never wait for 100% certainty on the battlefield because- General Sullivan, General Sullivan, Sullivan, former Army Chief of Staff, yep. Yes, I I think of that quote a lot, right? Like we do live in a society where we need to, you know, we want to know, and we hear that a lot with climate change, right? Well, if only 97% of the scientists say it's happening, we need 100%. And I just love that concept that we can't afford to wait for 100%. We can act with a level of, assuredness and do it in a way that is that we've deemed safe and you know have done taken the the steps to analyze but we can't sit around and wait and as you were just describing with the arctic that is a perfect example of we cannot sit around and wait for it to be melted and other nations to be kind of going getting in there to get their foot in the door so to speak there's our war fighters um uh, act from a place of um, wanting to ensure that our, they protect our nation and protect our troops and our soldiers. Uh, so we have, and, and, the, and the point you made about it being bipartisan, the bipartisan partisan area um, within Congress for a number of years now, and you've seen 
um, legislation passed on the defense authorization bills signed by uh, President Trump even to address climate impacts on our military and improve our resilience over the last five plus years. Right. And I think that that is really important to note that this isn't new. First of all, it's not new. And also there is a lot of bipartisan action, um, as you mentioned, with the National Defense Authorization Acts that have to be passed annually. Um, I remember a battle a few years ago on the House floor, I think, where someone tried to strip the language and you had a nice group of bipartisan members who saved the language on on the bill. So it is important that we are thinking of these of climate change more from just an environmental perspective, but this strategic security perspective is so important and the work that you do is so important. Where do you, you know, do you have optimism moving forward? What, where's your mind? Where, where are your thoughts on, um, on the future? Well, uh, you know, my thoughts of the future go to our, our youth and our young people, not only because I have three children and maybe someday some grandchildren as well, but also because I see that, um, the youth, uh, you know, across um, the political spectrum are motivated um, to address this issue, whether it's, you know, being the next clean energy entrepreneur and creating the next clean tech solution um, that will help us transform our energy systems with better batteries and microgrids and renewables or climate tech that's going to help us better predict so that we can become more resilient to the climate impacts that are built back in already baked into our system. Um, you know, across the board in the private sector, the public sector, I see that young people have innovation and ideas and uh, that the wheels of our society are finally beginning to move. Of course, it's, it's much too slow. And, and we, that's why we were already having to live with so much climate change. And we, you know, we hope that we'll be able to um, adapt uh, our human systems as quickly as the earth system is actually being changed by climate. But that's still not clear. Um, that's why we have to work quickly. That's why it's kind of an all hands on deck um, effort. And, and that's why I think Senator Warner was so committed uh, because he saw, you know, he was he was a visionary in, in, in a very unique way. Senator Warner could see uh, into the future how the world was going to change. He could see where we needed to go in a number of areas. But he also understood his roots and where America came from. He was a Virginian, you know, a statesman. And, you know, he knew that that um, things didn't always change all at once. Uh, and then it took time to create community, to create support. And he worked hard to do that and build those uh, levels of engagement um, that we needed to have. And, you know, so I think, you know, if he if he were able to speak to your listeners here today, you know, he would say and I had the privilege of working him, with him uh, so much over the last um, several decades of his of his long life that, you know, he learned about, um, in some ways, he didn't know it at the time, but he learned about um, to value uh, the nature and natural systems and then could see the impact of climate change from one of his earliest jobs um, in, in the Forest Service when he went out west and he worked uh, on the land in Idaho and Wyoming. And then when he went back years later, he could see uh, how the bark beetle had so devastated the forest there. So 
he had his own aha moment in this area. And then he spent so much time with our military leaders, particularly our naval officers, having served as secretary of the Navy. And he learned from their own personal experience, commanding ships or flying planes, that the conditions under which they were operating as warfighters had already begun to change because... We're definitely close to the end. I was just going to note that um, you were talking about Senator Warner and his impacts. And um, I think that, you know, it's great. He used to always say to me, you know, when we were working on the climate change bill in 2007, 2008, um, without a lot of expectation that it was going to make it to the president's desk for signature or that he would sign it if it even got that far. And he never let me be down about that. And he used to say, we're laying a beachhead, Chelsea, we're laying a beachhead, which obviously is a military term. And he was right. You know, we were setting a foundation of, you know, for climate action that um, unfortunately, I don't think either of us thought it would take this long and we we would be so many years removed from that and still trying to build on that beachhead. But I do think everything that you do and everything that the the flag officers you work with when you talk about this connection, I think what's really important is just whether you care about climate change because you're worried about national security or because you're an environmentalist or because you work on Wall Street and you see the financial implications or you're a healthcare worker and you see the you know rising asthma cases and so forth, there's kind of a message for everyone, right? There's a way to get to everyone about climate change. And so it's kind of identifying who trusted messengers are. And again, your messengers, you and your messengers were so credible and so helpful um, when, when I was working on climate legislation back in the day. And I just think it's really important that we continue to get this message out there. Well, I couldn't agree more. And I'm so glad, Chelsea, that you are helping communicate that message. Um, to those uh, individuals and voices that are so important uh, to helping to address um, uh, this problem. Sherry, for those listeners who want to dive a little bit deeper into the nitty gritty, um, where do you recommend they look for more information? Uh, Well, I I recommend they look at uh, the Center for Climate and Security uh, website, uh, uh, climateandsecurity.org. Uh, we report daily uh, on, for example, what um, what the what the Defense Department and the intelligence community are doing on uh, climate risks, and we have um, you know an ex- exciting um, community of practice of people interested in climate security who are participating. And I would urge anyone who wants to know more about it or get involved uh, to look at that website and sign up for um, our regular blogs. Great. Well, I thank you for your time. Um, Listeners, Sherry doesn't have power. So somehow we were still able to record this conversation. I hope that the weather improves for you and that you don't get this storm that's sitting on top of DC right now. And I hope that our paths will cross in person at some point in the near future. I do too, Chelsea. Thank you for reaching out to me. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you today. Happy November. Happy Halloween. What did you dress up as? Halloween. I, you know what I did on Halloween? What? I turned out all the lights in my house and I blew out all the candles and I hid because I forgot to buy candy and because I got 
my COVID booster, my shingles vaccine, and the flu shot all on Friday night. I was just not really feeling like I wanted to go back to CVS to buy candy. So I was like, all right, if my house is dark, no one will knock on my door. And you know what? No one knocked on my door. So you were feeling spooky scary is what you were doing with all those (laughs) shots. (laughs) Not that you're scary. You're not scary. You know what I mean. I know what you mean. All right. Um, appreciate Sherry Goodman joining us. She was awesome. Uh, she's so resolute, confident, uh, love hearing. I love the national security aspect and the DOD and the military side of things because that is oftentimes one of the forgotten aspects, um, areas where climate change is, is having a major impact on military installations, not just here at home, but U.S. military bases around the world, um, you know, obviously the Navy is, we know it at sea, we know that those bases are typically in ports and with sea level rise, you just pick one of them. It's, they're being affected some obviously more than others, but man, she delivered some really good information. I loved hearing her talk. You know, one thing that I just find so fascinating is that when I first kind of <clears throat> dove, um, head into climate change, we talked about climate change and national security more like the threats are going to be abroad, right? So the U.S. is going to be called in to either mid, uh, mediate or perhaps even engage um, in warfare on one side or the other for resource shortages like w- over water, that kind of um, mm-hmm. agriculture, that kind of thing. And there wasn't a lot that we talked about that were threats here at home, right? It was sort of outward looking. And fast forward 14 years, and guess what? Now the threats are internal as well. So I thought that was an interesting update to get from her. She's just so well-versed and so um, deep in these issues. And so I really enjoyed having her on the show. Plus, it was just fun to it's fun to see it, uh, somebody that you've, you know, I used to spend a lot of time with her. So it, it's been a while. It's been, it was nice to be back together, so to speak. Download, listen, subscribe. Make sure you, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you, I'm going to say, on going on a limb, that you probably do subscribe. But if you are a first-time listener, please, your Apple Podcast app, um, Spreaker, Google Podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcast, just sh- search Eco Right Speaks and hit that subscribe button. And I will let you... Put the plug in for a uh, five-star review, hopefully, in the comment. But you, you can do that all there right at Apple Podcasts. We appreciate everybody that has su- subscribed up until this point. And we hope that some of you that are first-time listeners right now will continue uh, to listen by subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Chelsea? That's right. And it's so easy while you're there to leave us a review. And in that review, you know, we've been asking people to throw their questions for Bob, but you can put a question for me or for Price or a guest you'd like to hear from. You can email us also with that those um, questions or that information. So we try to make ourselves really accessible to you, our listeners, because we wouldn't be here without our listeners. So just really, really excited that we're wrapping up season three price. I never thought we would make it this far, but here we are. And it's all because of you people who are listening right now. Who do we have next week on that note? 
Oh, next week is going to be fun. So Courtney Piper is uh, from Tennessee. She's a communications mm-hmm. expert. Okay. But what she's really done in Tennessee is um, to show how beneficial the advanced energy economy is to the state. So the advanced energy uh-huh. economy is like anything kind of clean energy related. It could be um, academia around that. It could be innovation. It could be the manufacturing. So really all aspects. And, you know, Tennessee is like a top producing state for electric vehicles. It has the national, you know, Oak Ridge national lab. So it's really um, a center of innovation that I'm pretty sure the other 49 states aren't really super aware. Well, maybe some of the other Southeast states, cause they're all competing to be the EV um, top EV state. So I just find her work fascinating and also really important. We're looking at, you know, to to sort of shift it to the politics, a red state that is doing a lot, um, you know, contributing a lot to the clean energy economy. And so she's going to talk about that. She's a lovely person, super smart and great communicator. So she will be our next week's guest. Well, speaking of uh, Tennessee, shout out to a few new members, Tom S in Tennessee, Michael, I in Alaska, Brenda B. in Ohio, Darlene P. in Massachusetts, and Sally H. in Montana, republican.org forward slash join. That is where you do it. We make that plea and plug every single week, and we will leave it right there, Chelsea, until next week when we can do this one again. All right. Well, I will see you then, Price. Great work, Chelsea. We'll see everybody next week. Have a great week, weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the Eco Right Speaks podcast brought to you by the team at RepublicEN.org. Make sure to visit RepublicEN.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco-right leader.